Welcome everybody to the 691st regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago. And as per our custom, I'd like us to begin by standing and giving the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Please be seated. And I'd like to, as I've uh, started doing the last few months, to have our uh, Civil War sesquicentennial moment. 150 years ago, in this very city, the Republicans were gathering for the 1860 convention. Uh, Lincoln's team, was led by Judge uh, Davis, was meeting at the Tremont House, a 260-room uh, hotel at the corner of Lake and Dearborn, just five blocks from the wigwam where the convention was going to meet. Uh, it was said at the Tremont House, it was so crammed that it is with much difficulty people can get about from one room to another, wrote a reporter from the Cincinnati Daily Commercial. The newsman estimated that 1,500 people will sleep in it tonight. Other hotels overflowed with conventioneers. One observer claimed that 130 people in the hotel in which he was quartered were glad to find space to sleep behind, sleep under billiard tables. It's estimated that uh, almost 40,000 people were uh, in town for that convention. And Lincoln's men were pretty confident at this point uh, on, on Monday, May 15, 1860. Newspapers correspondents sensed the upsurge. Lincoln's rise is on the stock. Uh, stock is on the rise, reported the newsman from the Philadelphia Press. Abe Lincoln is looming up tonight as a compromise candidate, and his friends are in high spirits, asserted the reporter from the Boston Herald. And Murat Halstead of the Cincinnati Daily Con Commercial echoed this sentiment by informing his readers on Monday night that Lincoln seems to be gaining ground, and his Illinois friends are greatly encouraged tonight as a prospect of his uniting of the doubtful states and the Northwest. Well, uh, thank you, and uh, let's eat. Well, again, everyone, while we're enjoying our desserts, I'd like to make a few announcements. Uh, first, I'd like to remind everyone that uh, this uh, meeting, just like uh, all our previous ones, is uh, being recorded. And uh, if you want to listen to this one or eventually or um, any of our previous talks, see Hal, our tape librarian. He'd be happy to take your money. Uh, a few announcements. Uh, Steve Rockstad will be um, speaking at the Kenosha Civil War Museum on May 18th about the Lincoln assassination. And uh, to, promote, to promote some of our own, um, our own Leslie Goddard as Clara Barton will be at the Civil War Days at the Napier Settlement in Naperville, May 15th and 16th. Rob Girardi will be speaking on general impressions of the Civil War at the Lincoln Davis Roundtable at the Country House in Alsep. That's on May 18th. On May 21st, the Salt Creek Roundtable will be having a panel discussion, what was the turning point of the Civil War? I would, that would, I, would, I would like to, really like, like to attend that one. And on uh, June 5th, Larry Hewitt will be at the Deep Delta Symposium in Hammond, Louisiana, speaking on slandered heroes, deserters who didn't, which is, sounds intriguing. Uh, I'd like to let everyone know that Ed Bars, who um, was our lead guide at the uh, um, uh, Battlefield Tour last month, will be back in Chicago on Wednesday, June 16th. He'll be at the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop. Uh, signing uh, copies of his new book, uh, Receding Tide, Gettysburg and Vicksburg, The Battles That Changed the Civil War. There are flyers about this event at your table, so please um, pick that up. And if you can't make it in person, uh, we are webcasting the event, so you can watch online, uh, ask questions to Ed by email, and uh, um, hopefully buy a copy or two of his new book. Uh, also, like to let everyone know that about an event uh, going on uh, in Chicago on Tuesday, 
the uh, 150th anniversary of the uh, nomination of Abraham Lincoln. There'll be a, a commemoration at the um, Cultural Center Tuesday, um, uh, May 18th at noon at the, uh, the Grand uh, Army of the Republic Rotunda on the second floor of the Cultural Center. Uh, there's going to be uh, artifacts there. Again, there's um, flyers about this event on your table, so uh, please pick those up. Uh, the original tally sheets from, the, uh, from that convention will be on display. Uh, George Buss, a Lincoln presenter, will be holding a mock press conference. Um, Alderman Ed Burke will be there, along with um, Mike Flannery and uh, um, several other uh, Lincoln, um, Lincoln files and Lincoln experts. So if you can all uh, attend that, uh, please do. It should be a, um, a great event. Um, Ray, did you have anything more to say about the event or just done? You're the hell with it? Okay. <laughs> uh, I'd like to call up uh, Fred Johansson now to uh, talk about uh, uh, a Memorial Day event at Oakwood Cemetery. Uh, for those who are looking for a, a satisfying way to celebrate uh, Memorial Day, a uh, bunch of guys down Joliet, reenactors, put on a, uh, a Memorial Day service at Oakwood Cemetery, which is on US 30 in Joliet. It will be Saturday the 29th, I believe it's Saturday, uh, at 10 a.m. It's a, about an hour. Uh, bring the kids. The kids love it. There's guns shooting. There's, there's uh, R.J. Samp blowing his horn. Uh, and uh, commemorating uh, speeches made at some of the, uh, the burial sites of some of the, uh, the veterans of the war and some of those guys who didn't come back. So if you're, as I say, if you're looking for someplace uh, satisfying to go, go down Joliet Saturday morning. 10 o'clock. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. And now I'd like to call up uh, Jerry Allen to help uh, conduct uh, democracy in action here as we uh, do our election for uh, next year's slate of officers. This is going to be a hard-fought battle, I'm sure, as we elect the officers for the next year. We have a slate that we will be presenting, but we also can have nominations from the floor. The only requirement is that the person you nominate must be present and accept the nomination. So you can't nominate someone who's not here and then we elect them and then we surprise them later. So here is the slate. For president, Ray Radovich, please stand. And remain standing, if you would, okay? Now hold your applause till the end, please. Senior Vice President, Bob Stoller. First Vice President, Brian Sider. Second Vice President, Mark Matranga. Treasurer, Paul, Paula Walker. Assistant Treasurer, Jim Cunningham. Secretary, John Kosiolko. Assistant Secretary Cindy Heckler. In addition, we will be electing four trustees with the term to expire in 2012. Mike Weeks, Leslie Allardyce, sorry, it's Leslie Goddard Allardyce, or is it Allardyce Goddard? I forget. Okay, whatever. Actually, it's Clara Barton. <laughs> Mark Kunis and Bjorn Skaptison. 
in addition, with uh, Paula Walker being on the slate as a treasurer, that leaves a vacancy in one trustee position for the term ending in 2011. So for that position, we're going to be nominating Jonathan Sebastian. So at this point, are there any nominations from the floor? Speak now. Okay. Well, at this point, all in favor of our slate, please say aye. 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 Opposed? Abstentions? <laughs> Looks like the slate is officially elected. Hey! And I'd just like to say thank you to all of those newly elected officers. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. Uh, I'd like to remind everyone you still have time to buy raffle tickets, so um, do so, please. I'd like to remind everyone that before Mr. Freeling speaks to us, turn off your cell phones or pagers, whatever elect electronic voice that might make an annoying noise. Um, we'll take a break now for about 15 minutes, and then we'll uh, resume the meeting. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Give those to give those to your friend. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Good. Yeah. Right. Okay. 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 Larry and I will do it. Hello, it's me again. We'll resume the meeting. I'd like to call up uh, uh, Bob Stoller to talk about next year's tour. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, before I begin, I would like one more round of applause for this year's tour chairman, who did a great job in the Overland campaign. See you. And, that, and that's all because Larry Gibbs was promoting her so well. Um, due to the fact that we have no imagination, we've decided we're going back to Virginia again. And we're going to put pontons on the bus and go across the James River and just start uh, basically about 20 miles from where Ray's tour ended. We will be doing Petersburg and Appomattox. We will be uh, involved in uh, seeing parts of the Petersburg National Battlefield we will make it to Appomattox, and uh, there will be lots of surprises on the way. So the dates of the tour, because I've been asked that, are April 27th to May 1st, 2011. Hope to see you all there. Thanks. Thank you, Bob. I'd like to remind everyone that uh, our speaker, Mr. Freeling, will be happy to uh, sell and sign copies of his books after the talk, so uh, please uh, see him. He'll be happy to talk with you and um, sell you his book. Um, I'd like to call up now Donna to talk about guests and new members. Well, good evening. Since it's late in the season, we don't have any new members tonight, but we have some guests. Our special guest and speaker, please stand up, William Freeling. Uh, oh, we, I take it back. He's not identified as a new member, but John Fisher did join recently. Stand up, John. Lee Newman, a friend of Janice McKay. And she came all the way from Florida. Lynn Ostfield, a friend of Stephen Carlson. And Ray Rasnuk, former member now living in Northern California. Yeah. Okay. And I would like to add my personal thank you to Ray for having a wonderful tour. It was such a delight to be in that 
grand hotel. Oh, and I didn't hear a single person complain about anything, which is remarkable. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Donna. And now it's raffle time. Where's Gibbs? <laughs> Absent. As usual. As usual. Well, I'm happy to say that because of your generosity, we made $207 tonight for battlefield preservation. So give yourselves a hand. That's great. And thank you very much. That's terrific. Okay. Um, Dr. Freeling, if you would please pick the first winning number. Okay. Winning number is last four numbers are 3457. 3457. Yay, all right. <laughs> Came from Florida to win. This is good. <laughs> then you owe Larry Gibbs because I think he just bought you the ticket, didn't he? <laughs> Take your pick, please, and then pick a winner, please. Here in Florida, do the Confederates. Next winning number, last three digits, 3348. 3348. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Um, next four digits, three, four, four, nine. Is there a pattern here? Hmm. Three, four, four, nine. No? Three, one, four, nine. Mm, three, four, four, nine. That's it. Wait a minute. No? Oh, <laughs> again? Tom. Good. That's great. Okay, next one, three, four, three, eight. Three, four, three, eight. All right, Jerry Allen. Yes. Are you going to win this one for your wife? Okay, last one, three, three, two, one. Three, three, two, one. <laughs> As if you needed it. <laughs> Probably already own it. It's a good one. It's good. It's a good one then. Thank you very Thanks again. Like I said, $207 for preservation. Thank you. Thank you, Mary and Larry. And our usual beloved um, quiz master, Mr. Zucker, can't, can't make it tonight. So in his stead is the lovely and talented Fred Johansson. <laughs> <laughs> okay, honor system for grading here. Honor system. Yeah, Bruce says there's no honor in this group, but we'll, we'll trust you anyways. All right, all these, uh, the following were general officers, U.S. Army regulars. None played a major role in the conclusion of the war. Listed in order of seniority. A brevet, brevet lieutenant general, hero of the War of 1812 in Mexico, retired and replaced by number two. Winfield Scott. Number two, a major general, Midwest Railroad man, victorious in West Virginia in 1861, but failed miserably against Lee. Resigned immediately after the 64 election. George Brinton McClellan. Uh, number three, a major general, a great American hero who showed administrative incompetence in Missouri and military ineptitude against Jackson, as GOP hopeful never made it to the 64 convention. Fremont, John C. Fremont. Number four, a major general hero of Mexico, older than number one, commanded Fort Fortress Monroe and Fort McHenry, and was the oldest general wounded in combat. John E. Wool. 
Uh, number five, a Brigadier General, an old trooper, senior corps commander in the Army of Potomac in 1862, sent into retirement by number 10, Sumner, Edwin V. Sumner. Number six, a Brigadier General was a desk officer, humiliated by Beauregard in 61, Jackson in 62. His exotic headgear revealed to his troops his secret identity as a Confederate agent. Uh, spent the last 10 years at a desk. Yeah, yeah. Irvin McDowell. Bruce, you want to tell him why the, his headgear was so odd? Uh, yeah, it, it, it was like a pith helmet type thing, and somehow the troops got into the idea that he was signaling with the helmet. Assuming there was some something inside. Yeah, it sort of looked like a it sort of looked like a beehive. Yeah, and, and it was. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, right. Okay. Guys at my table were wondering what in the world that was all about, but now, now you guys know. Uh, number seven, Brigadier General Hero Fort Sumter, service terminated by illness. Robert Anderson. Number eight, Brigadier General, the real commander whose credit was stolen by number two in West Virginia, uh, succeeded number nine as commander of the Army of Mississippi, and Buell as commander of the Army of Cumberland. Relieved after a breakdown in North Georgia, highest ranking Catholic in both U.S. Army and U.S. Volunteers. Rosecrans. Uh, number eight, Brigadier General, an Illinois Republican, successful commander of the Army of Mississippi, failed miserably against Lee. That sounds like a refrain. Uh, spent the rest of his career fighting Indians, second ranking general in the Army at the time of his retirement. John Pope. And the last one. Brigadier General, a favorite of the re Radical Republicans, miserable failure against Lee. <laughs> uh, successful Corps commander in Georgia, resigned after an insult from Sherman, ended the war as commander of Milwaukee. Hooker, fighting Joe Hooker. All right, how, how got number ten? How many got ten? So we got to go to the tiebreakers. Oh boy, always oh, good. Uh, first one, Brigadier General, third ranking general in U.S. Army. Never received a command during the war because of his su suspect Southern origin. William S. Harney. After the war, he was put back in command, but as long as he sat out the war in Louisville. Uh, the second one, a Brigadier General, the Inspector General of the U.S. Army, the oldest and the senior U.S. General killed in action. Joseph K.F. Mansfield. 62 uh, when he was shot. And the, uh, the last one, Brigadier General Jeb Stuart's father-in-law, mostly minor posts until uh, post-war uh, Indian Wars. Peace, St. George Cook. All right, who got all three tiebreakers? Oh, oh, we should have known this. And he didn't even proofread it before, uh, for me before. Well, you get a prize. No, no, your prize. At the meeting of your choice is Mary Abrams Barbell. <laughs> Thank you, Fred, for uh, pinch hitting. And now, without further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you who will be speaking on the strange, difficult triumph of the Southern Secession, William W. Freeling. I gotta get my water just a minute.
Well, let me tell you, uh, first of all, the two reasons it's such a delight to be here. Uh, I grew up in Chicago. I haven't lived here as an adult, but I grew up here. Went in the beginning to the University of Chicago's laboratory school. Uh, and when I was in sixth grade, the uh, Civil War Roundtable of Chicago and the Abraham Lincoln uh, Bookstore uh, jointly sponsored an essay contest for uh, people in elementary school to write on American history. And I wrote an essay on American history uh, and submitted it for the prize. Uh, and I finished third. Uh, and, they, uh, and there was a prize ceremony. I can't remember if the ceremony was at the Abraham Lincoln book shop or at the Civil War Roundtable. But uh, I was given an autographed copy of Benjamin Thomas's Lincoln, which had just come out and was at the head of the bestsellers list. And I'll tell you, from that moment, I was hooked. Uh, it, it, it struck me as just a glorious field with glorious people behind it. And I, I never would have dreamed that I would get to talk at the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago uh, back when I was a sixth grader. But here I am. <laughs> and, this, and, the, and the second reason why it is uh, such a pleasure to be here uh, is this table I sat at to have uh, dinner. I was asked the most incredible uh, questions, questions that I've never been asked for a very long time. And the lead question uh, was, if I could ask any Civil, any civil War participant a question, uh, what would I ask him? Uh, what, a, what a great question. I'm sure that every one of you would have an answer. Uh, I'm writing a book on Abraham Lincoln right now, so my answer was, I would like to ask Abraham Lincoln if he really did hate his father. Uh, <laughs> but that's the, kind of, that's the kind of wonderful topic that only people who, uh, who, who love Civil War history uh, would ask, and I haven't been asked that kind of question at any other Civil War roundtable. And then we got this to, to talking, uh, and it was, it was terrible, uh, because everything that came up bore on my talk uh, and this fellow, John Kikioli, is that right? Kachoki. I'll never be able to pronounce it. Let's just call him John K. This fellow, this fellow John K, uh, uh, anticipated every point I was going to make. <laughs> so, so what, what am I doing up here? He ought to be talking, not me. Uh, and what, what a great group you have. And then this, this character, Bruce. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He answers questions I couldn't possibly answer. He gets all 13 of them right uh, just to prove to me that he he's really uh, deserves his prowess. He has me check his answers. Uh, but it's been a hell of a night, and now I have to talk to you guys. And uh, so it's a little daunting. Uh, I want to make two points tonight, uh, and, uh, and, I, and I hope I will succeed in making them. Uh, and the first point is that you cannot study the battle history of the Civil War unless you understand the causes of the Civil War, and particularly uh, unless you understand the nature of Southern secession. And the second point I want to make is that secession was nothing like automatic. Uh, it is not something that happened uh, instantly. It is not something that happened uh, spur, uh, uh, spontaneously. 
It was not a grassroots movement. There was a long period of time when it looked like the secessionists would not uh, pull it off. It was, in short, the unionists' game to win or lose in uh, the South. And the way the secessionists won that game when they really didn't have the power to do it uh, uh, had everything to do with the way the Civil War was uh, fought. Uh, now I have some puzzled looks on my face, uh, and maybe, uh, maybe even John Kay will be interested in what I have to say. <laughs> so Lincoln was elected, uh, and the issue in the South, uh, on November 6, 1860, and the issue uh, in the South was, uh, was, was instantly, uh, is this man dangerous? Do we uh, need to secede? Uh, and what was clearly obvious to just about everybody uh, was that if he was, that whether he, he had better be really dangerous because secession was really, really dangerous. Uh, uh, you could lose everything very quickly uh, in secession. You could lose a civil war and lose slavery. And as a matter of fact, there was no way to abolish slavery faster uh, than to secede and lose a civil war. Everything was at stake for people with fortunes and for people without fortunes because all kinds of non-slaveholders in the South thought that unless blacks were enslaved, blacks would take over the South, take over their jobs, uh, uh, rape their women. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of race prejudice behind uh, slavery, which has uh, nothing to do in some cases with whether you own the slave or not. So the safety of your family, the nature of your economy, the power of the South, everything is at stake in this decision. It's a very dangerous decision, and Lincoln is not obviously dangerous. Uh, and that gives the Unionists a real chance to beat the uh, secessionists. Why isn't Lincoln dangerous? Well, first of all, he doesn't have any power except the power of the presidency. Uh, the Republican Party does not have a majority in the House. The Republican Party does not have a majority in the Senate. The Republican Party does not have a majority in the Supreme Court. Uh, there is no law that Lincoln can pass. There is no court decision that Lincoln can make. There is nothing that Lincoln can do uh, at the moment in terms of his uh, political uh, power. Uh, and in addition to that, it isn't clear that if Lincoln had all the power in the world that he would do anything to damage us, the, the, the South, anything to abolish uh, slavery. Uh, one of the things that I'm writing a book on Lincoln right now, and one of the things that really intrigues me is how much Lincoln backed away from being anti-slavery in the late 1850s because he knew that most Northerners were not abolitionists. North, most Northerners did not want uh, slavery abolished, particularly if it was going to cause a civil war to abolish uh, slavery. And so uh, he, he, uh, he was at pains to try to reassure people that he did not wish to abolish slavery. And the pains to which he took in his inaugural address have never struck me as anything but stunning. Uh, and it's something that every Civil War student has got to think about. And it's this. In his inaugural address, Lincoln proposes that the country accept the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Now, when you think of the 13th Amendment, you think of the amendment that was passed in 1865 and abolished slavery. 
But the 13th Amendment that Lincoln was endorsing on March 4th 1861 is a, is a constitutional amendment that is declared unamendable. You cannot amend this constitutional amendment. Uh, and the constitutional amendment says, Congress shall never abolish slavery. Congress shall never abolish slavery, an unamendable constitutional amendment. It had just passed Congress. Lincoln had endorsed it in his inaugural address. So say the unionists. What is dangerous about Abraham Lincoln? All you can possibly say is that he might become dangerous. And if he becomes dangerous, then we can secede. Uh, let's, let's wait and see. Or as the saying went at that point, let's wait for an overt act, an act of real abolitionism. If such an act ever occurs, of course we have to secede. But who knows whether Lincoln's going to be dangerous. He doesn't seem to want to abolish slavery. He seems to want a constitutional amendment forever preventing federal emancipation. And even if he did want emancipation, he doesn't have a majority in Congress and he doesn't have a majority in the Supreme Court. Secession is just nonsense. And this is particularly uh, the viewpoint of people in Virginia, which is the largest and most influential of all southern states, uh, and into the n normal uh, litany of reasons why it's, it's, it's foolish, it's suicidal to secede. The Virginians' uh, point is, if we secede, then all the battles are going to be on our soil. We're going to be the state desecrated. We're going to be the state that the darn uh, 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 people in 1861, in, 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 in 2010 from the north, are going to come down and visit on their pilgrimages uh, and go over our, uh, our uh, soil. Virginians knew that they were going to be the battlefield in the Civil War. They didn't want any, uh, any part uh, of it. I am convinced that if there could have been a Gallup poll in America in November 6, 1860, and of course there couldn't be for all kinds of reasons, uh, about 85% of, uh, of, Northern, of Southerners would have voted against secession. That's how big the majorities were against uh, secession. Now when you have a big majority like that against secession, what you want to do is to be, uh, to have a body called that will reflect that majority and give you power over the situation. Uh, and what the Southern Unionists want to do is to call a Southern Convention, a convention of all the Southern states, and let all the Southern states decide unanimously uh, together whether they want to uh, secede. This is an old idea in American politics, as most of you know. Uh, it had been John C. Calhoun's idea in 1850 to call a, a Southern a convention, and a very abortive Southern convention had, in fact, been called back in 1850. The Unionists want to do it again. Uh, and they want a, a, a dramatic convention of all the southern states to decide what to do about Lincoln's election. Uh, and they are convinced, and I think they're absolutely right, that if such a southern convention ever is called, that the most people will decide is that we need to secede if Lincoln does something. Uh, which will diffuse secession uh, and make uh, it impossible to have disunion or a civil war in, uh, in 1860. 
I repeat, you have a huge uh, majority in the South that does not wish to uh, secede. Uh, they have a mechanism in mind, a Southern Convention, which will allow them to prevail, uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and they intend to fight it out uh, and, to, and to defeat the, the secessionists who are uh, advocating such a very, very dangerous uh, policy. So the question really becomes not uh, whether uh, the South automatically seceded when Abraham Lincoln was elected, but how in the world did the secessionists manage to get the South out of the Union uh, in the face of these huge majorities and all these wonderful reasons not to secede that the Unionists were voicing so enthusiastically and sometimes so eloquently? And of course, you all know the answer. The answer is that each southern state thought it had a right to decide about secession. Uh, that most southerners thought that the, uh, that the states, each of the individual states, had ratified the Constitution, uh, and each of the individual states could decide whether to break up uh, the Union. And if, if all you had to do to get the ball rolling was to get one state out of the Union, you could get a majority in that one state, and it didn't matter if there was an 85% majority uh, in, the, uh, in the whole South against uh, secession. You change the focus of who makes the decision. The decision will not be made by a Southern Convention. The decision will be made by each individual state. We'll get one state out, and then we'll see what happens. And if, after we get one state out, maybe we get two out, maybe we can get three out. This was the secessionist strategy. Uh, we, we, we must shoot down a Southern Convention at all costs. We must have no delays. On the contrary, we must get state by state out of the Union. Now, the secessionists have not only that advantage, they have the advantage of having one state that's dying to do it. Uh, and has been dying to do it uh, ever since uh, 1832. And that state, as you all know, is evil South Carolina. Uh, and evil uh, South Carolina uh, had decided back in 1832 that the Union was a disaster. Uh, partly because of slavery, but not altogether. I was having this argument with Larry uh, before, uh, before, um, before this enlightening dinner where, where I got quizzed down and impressed by John Kay. Uh, but before dinner, this fool, uh, Larry, uh, told me that I was wrong uh, to, to not see that slavery is 100% the uh, cause of uh, secession. And it's certainly a lot the cause of, 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 of all the decisions I'm going to talk about tonight. But there's another factor in South Carolina, uh, which is that uh, South Carolinas feel, feel that South Carolinians feel <clears throat> that only one kind of republic is ever going to work. And that's in a republic of aristocrats. Uh, if the best men with the most money can make the decisions in a republic, a republic can survive. But if the riffraff makes decisions, if the hoi polloi makes decisions, if the mobocracy makes uh, decisions, American republicanism will never last. Uh, and not only will republicanism fall, but slavery will fall uh, with it. 
the South Carolina, South Carolina's amazing. Uh, in a period when everybody has got one man, one vote, uh, where anybody in a, practically every state can run for governor, can run for uh, South Carolina, can run for uh, the Senate. Uh, in South Carolina, you have to have huge amounts of land to run for governor, bigger amounts of land to run for South for uh, the United States uh, Congress. Uh, you just have to be an aristocrat. Uh, and as far as South Carolina was concerned, it has been proved, what we've been saying for the last 28 years since 1832, has now been proved. The biggest boob in America has been elected president. Uh, the biggest, quote, commoner, the rail splitter, uh, is uh, president. Uh, uh, not, uh, not a wealthy man, uh, not a man trained at Yale or Harvard, but a man who had no education, who uh, tells dirty jokes, who, who, uh, who's a man of the people. He's going to be our leader. What's going to happen to the republic? The republic is going to go to smash, uh, and we must not allow this. South Carolina wants out of the Union fast, as fast as possible. And there's only one thing, and this is practically unanimous. There are very few people in South Carolina who oppose this. Uh, some of the ones that do are very powerful, but they're powerful because they're so exceptional. Uh, <clears throat> there's only one thing that can stop them, and that is that they're scared. Uh, they're scared that what's going to happen, what's going to happen to them if they do secede, is going to is exactly what happened in 1832. Uh, and what happened in 1832 was that Andrew Jackson, through, who was president, uh, through a series of wonderful uh, maneuvers, isolated them uh, uh, and made it uh, sure that no other southern state was going to join them. South Carolinians were, and they remembered that moment, they, that moment when not only the Yankees were against them, but all the Southerners were against them, and they were out on a limb having risked their lives and fortune and sacred honor, and they had no way of winning what was uh, turning into the contest. And they, 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 they crawled shamefacedly back into the Union. They gave up on nullification. They gave up for the moment on uh, secession. They thought that they'd acted like cowards. They thought that they didn't deserve to be the sons of their fathers. Uh, uh, and uh, it was a terrible moment of shame in South Carolina in 1832. And the same damn thing might happen in 1860. Uh, uh, all these other Southern cowards might not uh, secede, and South Carolina might go out of the Union uh, and might once again be isolated. And they were particularly worried about Georgia. Uh, Georgia was his right uh, neighboring on South Carolina, uh, had a very, very strong Unionist tradition, had been the big Unionist state in 1860, excuse me, in 1850, and it stopped the secession movement, which South Carolina had tried even then uh, after the compromise of 1850. Georgia won't secede if our neighbor won't secede, the rest of the South won't secede, uh, and we'll be stuck all by ourselves again, just like we were in 1832. This is really scary. So they're desperate to secede. They loathe Abraham Lincoln. They think American Republicanism is stake. They think they and they only have all the answers. Uh, and uh, these darn Georgians uh, don't see the light of uh, day.
what are we going to do? Uh, on November 9th, uh, three days after Lincoln was elected, the South Carolina legislature meets to try to decide what in the world to do. Uh, and there are two parties. Uh, one party says, we have got to get out of the union fast and precipitate a crisis and hope that things work out. Uh, and we got to call a convention uh, immediately, if not sooner, and no later than the middle of December. The other group says, no. That's too dangerous. We can't do that. We've got to wait and see. Uh, and we can't have a convention until at least January. And the people who want us to see it immediately say, if we wait till January, the movement to have a Southern convention may get off the ground, uh, and we may not be able to decide because we'll have to wait for a Southern convention. The people who are in favor of waiting say, let's just wait and see what happens. Let's, for, for a change, be cool. Let's not lose our tempers. Uh, let's not immediately secede. Fascinating debate, uh, uh, and for, uh, for, for, for it rages for three, four, five, six hours, and finally the uh, people who are scared win. Uh, and the South Carolina legislature votes by, uh, excuse me, the, the South Carolina Senate votes by a vote of 44 to 1 to delay any secession convention until the middle of January uh, 1861. This just horrifies the, 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 the true blue secessionists who think they've lost the whole game. Uh, they've handed the unionists their opportunity to have a Southern Convention. They've handed the unionists the chance to cool off the uh, region. And they send desperate telegrams down to Charleston and say, can't you get up a rally? Can't you do something to uh, save this uh, situation? And here's where the story really gets fascinating, because uh, a coincidence, a chance event, uh, turns everything around on November 9th, November 10th, 1860. I'm convinced, as I was telling some of you at the dinner, that chance makes a difference in history, that all kinds of crazy things happen. It's not just grand impersonal forces like slavery that cause something like secession. It's odd coincidences that, 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 that deflect the story uh, and, uh, and, and can change the timing of events and can change the whole uh, structure of events. And uh, as an example, let me tell you what happened on November 9th and 10th in uh, Charleston and see if you can't agree with me that this is the damnedest story you've ever heard about uh, why the uh, Civil War started at least uh, when it did. Charleston and Savannah, the merchants of Charleston and Savannah, had not been doing too well in the 1850s. Uh, they had fallen behind the New York merchants and they'd fallen behind the New, the, uh, New Orleans merchants. And when merchants fall behind <laughs> in the 19th century, the first thing they want to do is to do some internal improvements which will improve their situation. As far as the Charlestonians and the Savannians were concerned, what we needed was a railroad between Charleston and Savannah. And if we have a railroad between Charleston and Savannah, we can concentrate the economic power of those two cities uh, and thereby save our economic situation from New York and from New Orleans and from a situation which is going from bad to worse. In 1854, the railroad starts. Uh, it's a very difficult railroad to build because of the muck that uh, someday William Tecumseh Sherman would have to march uh, through. 
and uh, the uh, railroad has terrible disadvantages in terms of climate. Uh, all the slaves who work on it, and it's, it's built by slave labor, uh, fall sick. Uh, 65 slaves die in the process of trying to build this railroad where no railroad should be built. Uh, and uh, in 1857, the panic of 1857 uh, stops the railroad for the moment from being built at all. <laughs> In 1859, the work on the railroad resumes. And then on November 1st, 1860, the railroad is completed. Now there is no reason in the world why the railroad had to be completed on November 1st, 1860, five days before Lincoln uh, was elected. But that, by coincidence, is when the railroad was completed. Everybody's very excited, so they arrange a celebration of the uh, railroad uh, in uh, Savannah. Charlestonians go to Savannah and they have a grand old party in Savannah to celebrate the building of the railroad. And then everybody says, well, I had such a good time in Savannah. Why don't you Savannians come to Charleston uh, and uh, we'll have a big celebration in Charleston. So they agree to have a big celebration in Charleston. This is before Lincoln is ever elected. Uh, and they set the date of the uh, meeting to celebrate the railroad in uh, Charleston on November 9th. November 9th, the very day that the South Carolina legislature has decided to postpone uh, secession, uh, and the, the secessionists are desperate for some way of reviving the movement. So the Georgians happened to be in Charleston the night of November 9th. And a man named Francis Bartow, who most of you haven't heard of, although you probably have. <laughs> Let's see how good he is. So who is Thomas? Who is Francis Bartow? Francis Stebbins Bartow, born 1816, Colonel 7th Georgia Infantry, killed in action at Bull Run 1861 as a Confederate congressman, state senator from Savannah. Absolutely right, and when and what happened? Uh, he was killed in action at Bull Run. And then what happened? His body was brought back to Georgia's buried Laurel, Laurel Grove Cemetery. He got one wrong. <laughs> His body was first brought back to Charleston, uh, where they had a tremendous funeral for him. Uh, the biggest state funeral uh, of the whole Confederate. The guy is fantastic. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why you invite speakers when you have people like this. <laughs> so anyway, Francis Bartow happened to be there. Uh, uh, and the, the Charlestonians have an inkling about Francis Bartow, and they think maybe he can be helpful. So there's a big celebration going on on November 9th, uh, uh, not celebration, but just a big dinner, uh, a big public dinner in uh, Charleston. And somebody has the wit to ask Francis Bartow to speak. And he happens to be, if there hadn't been for the railroad being completed on this crazy day, uh, and the, the celebration happened to be scheduled for this day, Bartow would have been nowhere in sight. Uh, and history could have gone right along which, the way it was going, which was for South Carolina to delay uh, secession. Bartow gets up and he speaks before 4,000 people. And he says, he says, you South Carolinians, you're crazy. You are out of your minds. There is no excuse for secession at this point. It is the stupidest policy we could uh, possibly adopt. It'll get us all killed. Uh, uh, it'll get slavery killed. There is no reason why you should see to see. And then he says, half under his breath, but by God, if you do such a stupid thing, George is going to have to go along with you. 
because we can't have a war with South Carolina on one side and Georgia on the other side. If you secede, you're gonna drag, you're gonna drag us into it and we're gonna be with you. Don't do it, please don't do it, but if you do do it, we'll be with you. We're, <laughs> we're upon an enormous cheer goes up uh, and the uh, thought, the thought, and the scream is Georgia is pledged to be with us. Now we can dare to secede. Uh, a telegram is sent to Charleston, uh, that is sent to Columbia that night, saying, "Mr. Bartow has pledged Georgia behind us. <laughs> Reconsider your decision at once." The next morning, a train, a special train, is sent from Charleston uh, to Columbia to bring the glad tidings. The train arrives at 2 p.m. At 6 p.m., the South Carolina legislature votes unanimously to hold that secession convention uh, in uh, December. Now, please note, ladies and gentlemen, you don't have a lunatic on your mind, on your hands, uh, speaking to you tonight. Uh, it is not my notion that uh, this is what caused the Civil War. Uh, I think lots of things could have happened to have a Civil War in 1861. Still could have happened. Uh, and I think that if there had been a Civil War in 1862 or three or five, uh, uh, it's very possible. But in terms of when there's a Civil War and when this ball gets moving, this little quirk, this, this circumstance, this chance that the railroad happened to be finished on that day and that Bartow happened to be there on that uh, day uh, made uh, all the difference. And South Carolina was out of the Union. So the next question was, is anybody else going to go out of the Union? Is, is Bartow going to be proved uh, right? And there's a battle royal in the Deep South in the Lower South, in the Cotton Kingdom, about whether to secede. And I, I, want to, uh, I want you to realize that it's only in the Lower South where this is a question at this point. It's only in the states that are furthest down in the hemisphere. It's only in the states of South Carolina and Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi and Alabama uh, and, and Texas and Louisiana where there's a chance that uh, people are going to follow South Carolina out of the Union. In those Lower South regions, there is a real fight about whether to follow these crazy South Carolinians out this time or to let them uh, waver on the limb. And once again, there's a real question about who's going to win. And once again, uh, there's one of these crazy quirks that happens. Uh, and this time, it's, a, I think, a serious mistake by a politician. And I think mistakes by politicians, just like chance events, can cut into the narrative events uh, and cause things to happen. Uh, and intriguing people can uh, suddenly seem important. And this time it's President James Buchanan. Uh, and Buchanan has had a hell of a presidency. Uh, uh, <laughs> he has made mistake after mistake. He has lost power after power. Uh, he is ridiculed after ridiculed. Uh, and the question is, how are you going to respond to secession? Uh, and the, uh, the, the cry among those who who, who, who really dislike Buchanan is, why doesn't he at last show some, black, some backbone? Why doesn't he at last act like Andrew Jackson? 
Why doesn't he throw uh, everything at the secessionists right away uh, and uh, coerce them back into the uh, Union? There are other people in the North saying, now that would be really dumb uh, we, if we uh, started a war with just South Carolina when all these other states are still trying to decide about secession. Let's at least let them decide, and they wouldn't decide yet until um, the middle of uh, January. And there are other people who are after Buchanan to please do something. And Buchanan, after 72 hours, decides that he's going to be what he thinks is Andrew Jackson. Uh, and he sends a relief ship called the Star of the West, as all of you know, uh, to, uh, to uh, South Carolina to reinforce the uh, fort uh, at uh, Fort Sumter uh, and, to, uh, and to, to make sure that uh, that, the, say, that if a war starts, it'll start on the Yankees' term. Sends a ship reinforcing that fort with 200 soldiers uh, beneath deck, ready to jump off at Fort Sumter and reinforce that uh, ship. South, the South Carolina commissioners, who happen to be in Washington to negotiate with the federal government to give up Fort Sumter, hear about this. Uh, they telegraph back to the governor of South Carolina, James Buchanan has decided to coerce us. James Buchanan is going to sell, throw federal force at us. South Carolina government, governor gets this telegram, and he sends a telegram to the governors of all the other lower south states. Uh, and that, those, those uh, telegrams say, Buchanan is about to reinforce the federal force. We think he might reinforce the federal fort in your state as well as in South Carolina. We think you'd better seize the federal forts in your states. This is before secession has ever been determined on uh, in these other uh, southern states. One of the most exciting times I have ever had uh, in the course of, uh, of researching the Civil War was to find these telegrams between these governors. There's a very carefully worked out plot, we'd call it a conspiracy today, by the Southern governors to seize these forts uh, before Buchanan can send, uh, can send reinforcements. And to make a long story short, all those forts are seized uh, in uh, the lower south states before the states have ever voted to uh, secede as a result, as a, as a response to what James Buchanan has done. And that immediately changes the question. The question is no longer, is secession wise? The question is, do we stand behind our brave boys who have seized federal forts from the tyrant? Do you want to fire your, your, your guns uh, at Northerners, at Southerners, or Southerners? It's not whether secession is wise. It's not whether uh, civil war is wise. It's who do you want to kill? Do you want to kill your fellow Southerners, or do you want to kill the, uh, uh, these, these horrendous Yankees and this horrendous Yankee president, James Buchanan? Uh, and state after state, when this, when this whole question has changed as a result of this new military situation that Buchanan has precipitated, the whole situation changes. Uh, and by the 1st of February, 1861, South Carolina has been joined by the other lower south states. Now, if Buchanan had done what he, th what he should have done, if Buchanan had done what I think Lincoln, what I'm positive Lincoln would have done, uh, waited, waited, waited until the situation really sorted itself out, 
I am not sure that the lower south states would have voted to secede. This was a new angle in those secession campaigns. And the, the, whole, the whole tone of the secession campaigns changed when the issue was no longer is it wise to secede, but do we stand behind our boys who have seized the federal tyrants' forts in our uh, states? This is what I mean when I say a mistake by a statesman can make a tremendous difference. Of course, one of the ironies is, is, is that Jackson had never intended to do any such thing. Uh, what Jackson uh, uh, did in this nullification controversy was to, uh, to, to enforce federal laws offshore and to collect the tariffs offshore. Uh, and, uh, and South Carolina didn't have a navy, and South Carolina could do nothing about that. Uh, that's the kind of thing that Buchanan uh, should have done. That's the kind of thing I'm convinced Lincoln would have done if he'd done anything. Uh, but what most people would have done if they were really as careful, sober statesmen is just wait and see what happens and not stick your nose into this thing right away uh, and, and make things worse. So now we have seven southern states out of the Union, but that is not enough, and everybody knows that. You're not going to win a civil war against the uh, Union if eight southern states with two-thirds of the southern people are still in the Union. Uh, and in, in what is the decisive vote for the other southern states, the Virginia Convention, the Virginia Secession Convention called to consider Virginia on April 4th, 1861, uh, eight days before the Civil War actually starts. On April 4th, 1861, the Virginia Secession Convention votes two to one against secession, turns down secession by a two to one majority. And that's the approximate majority the Unionists have throughout the rest of the Upper uh, South. Uh, states that are still uh, in the, uh, in the uh, Union. The situation is becoming desperate again, and then now we have a new president uh, who, is, who is a much wiser man uh, and who tries by a series of uh, maneuvers that I don't have time to tell you about tonight. If you ask me about it in the question and answer period, I'll tell you about it. And if you ever invite me back, I'll tell you about it in detail. Uh, it's going to be an important chapter in my book on Lincoln. Lincoln's got a strategy that he's going to reinforce Fort Pickens in Pensacola, uh, Florida. And then he's going to be able to just give up Fort Sumter in South Carolina. And that's going to be so stunning to the Virginians that the President of the United States is giving up uh, Sumter voluntarily that they very well may stay in the Union. It's a brilliant plan. Uh, uh, make your, make your, make your uh, point at a place way out of the way like Pensacola instead of in the midst of the, the lion's den in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, and to make a very long story short, Winfield Scott, who is John Kay, has said to me, is a hero in many ways uh, of Civil War military strategy, really screws up uh, Lincoln's order uh, to uh, reinforce Fort Pickens. Uh, and it doesn't work. And Lincoln finds out about it that it's not going to work very, very late in the game. Uh, and supplies are running out in uh, Fort Sumter, and he decides that he must do something about Fort uh, Sumter. So he sends one of his clever telegrams down to Jefferson Davis uh, saying uh, that I'm about to send some food for hungry men down to uh, Charleston, uh, and if you don't attack us, uh, that's all we'll land. We won't land any reinforcements. Uh, Davis gets this telegram, blows up. 
up uh, uh, and the guns start at Fort, uh, at Fort uh, Sumter. So now the Virginians have a new situation to consider. Now there's a civil war down in Charleston. Uh, and uh, now the uh, Unionists are no longer so much in control of the Virginia uh, Secession uh, Convention. Uh, but there still is a big fight in the Virginia Convention about whether to secede, despite the fact that uh, fortifications have started uh, in <clears throat> The, the, in spite of the fact that the war has uh, started. Now at this point I have to, I have to uh, tell, you, tell you about, back up for a second, and tell you about a crucial thing about the Virginia Convention, which was that when it's called on February 4th, 1861, when the state authorizes the convention, it is declared that the people of Virginia must vote to accept any secession ordinance. It's not enough for the convention to decide to secede. Then the people must ratify the uh, secession convention's decision. And this is particularly insisted on by the delegates from West Virginia, where there are very few slaves, and who are afraid that some kind of conspiracy of the slaveholders will take the state out of the Union before the non-slaveholders of West Virginia can stop this process. So they insist that there must be a vote by the people of Virginia before Virginia ever uh, secedes. Once again, the secessionists are, af are afraid of waiting for that vote, delaying secession, uh, and playing into the hands of uh, the Unionists. And they develop a diabolical strategy, particularly Henry Wise develops a, a, a diabolical strategy. Henry Wise has been governor of Virginia. Uh, he, is, he was governor of Virginia at the time of John Brown. He's an ex-governor now, but he decides the thing to do at this point is to seize federal installations uh, uh, in Virginia before this vote can ever take place and force the hand of the uh, secessionists. The whole game will change, says Wise, if the militia from Virginia seizes uh, Harper's Ferry Arsenal, seizes the Gosport Naval Yards uh, at Norfolk uh, before anybody can vote. And once, the, once we've done that, then the people of Virginia will be able to vote on whether they will stand behind their brave uh, boys. The Unionists scream foul. They scream this is the desecration of American democracy. They scream that Henry Wise has no right to do that, that the people must vote to secede before such military actions are uh, taken. And there is at this point an absolutely classic debate between a secessionist and a unionist about whether this is a legitimate thing that Henry Wise is doing or whether democracy itself is being destroyed by, uh, by uh, Wise. Uh, and in, in that debate it plays an important role in my new book on the secession of Virginia. It's a fabulous debate and I want you to hear it because I think that debates like this can change history too. And I have enlisted poor Tom uh, to uh, help me uh, stage this little debate for you uh, in, the, in the interest of showing you that you don't have to just recreate battles to make uh, Civil War uh, recreations exciting. This gentleman here, if you call him a gentleman, uh, <laughs> is John Baldwin, 
a unionist from Augusta you've never heard of, and the reason you've never heard of him, I say I, Henry Wise, is because he's such an idiot, uh, 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 and he's such a coward, uh, and he has no intention of understanding the legitimate military force in this situation. And now he is about to tell the Virginia uh, Secession Convention about something being wrong with me. Go ahead, Mr. Baldwin, try to convince you. <laughs> I desire to draw to the attention of this convention to great and high considerations affecting whether we are a body limited by the constitution of the state or whether, these being revolutionary times, we are invested with all manner of power. This convention is authorized to change the whole constitution of the state. Not without the sanction of the people. The people themselves in calling this convention together stated limitations. Suppose they have required us to submit all questions to them. Is there, is, is there any man here when the war, when the car, car of war is rushing over the people uh, themselves, is there any man here who will tell me whether the welfare of the people does not require us to take responsibility for doing in the name of the people uh, what they cannot do for themselves? Sir, the, um, the, Safety of the people for every law, moral, divine, political, and, and, and popular justifies overriding, for a time at least, the acts of even the Constitution itself. Not under our system. Under our system, civil war attacks the uh, safety of all, makes the very Constitution almost irrelevant. We have simply got to take the special um, necessity of uh, acting at this point. We have got to seize the forts, or the people's forts are not going to be available to them when they do secede. The gentleman from Princess Anne informs us that the welfare of the people is a higher sort of law, is a sort of higher law known to free government. I deny it. I deny that we have any higher law in our system of government than the Constitution. I deny that there can be any welfare of the people in violation of fundamental constitutional principles. The gentleman seems to think that we are in a revolutionary times now, and that, therefore, the great principles of free government are all to be forgotten. It seems to me that even if there was a time to appeal to a great cardinal principle of constitutional power, it's a time like this. The convention, like the people themselves, are under obligations to observe the constitution of the state until it's lawfully changed. It cannot be lawfully changed until it is submitted to the people and ratified by them. If the argument of the, of the gentleman and his principles are correct, you can do nothing whatever until after the election in May. Are we to stand still, we the conservators of the people, are we to stand still and do nothing between now and uh, May? Let the people say, our convention has advised us to secede in order to defend ourselves in case we elect to secede in, the, in May, we will take the arms necessary to uh, defend ourselves. We will take the forts that now threaten our lives and liberty. We will take the Navy Yard that holds all our ship timber, the best in the United States. We will take that Navy Yard now. Then we'll have plenty of arms and ammunition. If we do not take it, when we do secede, we will have no ships, we will have no muskets, we will have no powder, we will have no ordnance. The, the amount of the gentleman's argument is that we are to do nothing, that we are to let the powder go, that we are to let the Navy Yards go, that we are to let all the arms at Harper's Ferry go, all this because of a mere sticking point between twiddly-dee and twiddly-dum. <laughs> <laughs>
By what authority is war upon us? Who has declared war? Who has authorized it? The President of the United States, it is true, has threatened a war against the Confederate States, and a war in which I am perfectly disposed to make common cause with the Confederate States. But it is not yet war until we adopt it. Sir, what right have we, when the people have said that our action shall go back before them, to bring about a state of things that would prevent them from ever having to, the right to pass upon, upon it? They say revolutions never go backwards, and if we start this on is at the outset, without regard to the proper limitations of power, cautious as we may be here to for be, I tell you that we are in danger of emerging from this revolution anything but a free people. It may be that we will make this war at a disadvantage, that constitutional law may be unfavorable to the success of the state, but I would rather go into a war with all the disadvantages resulting from a constitutional power than to throw off the reserves necessary for the safety of the people. I can never consent to leave the principles of constitutional law, of limited government, and of representative responsibility and restrain to launch upon any principles so vague, so ominous of evil, as the principle amounts announced to the maximum of the welfare of the people. In the name of my constituency, in the name of constitutional law, in the name of constitutional liberty, in the name of representative responsibility, I protest against this act. <laughs> Well, at least we got one sensible person in this room. <laughs> you know the rest of the story, of course. Uh, Wise does seize those arms. There is a state of war. When the people of Virginia do go to vote, they vote whether they're going to stand behind their brave boys who have been so uh, creative as to seize the federal arm arms before they can be uh, reinforced. Are you a loyal Virginian? Do you stand behind what, you, what your own militia has done? Or are you a traitor? to uh, Virginia. See how that changes the whole atmosphere of the uh, secession uh, election, uh, and Virginia does vote to uh, secede. But by no means does Henry Wise win this argument. John Baldwin's argument is a very, very sound one. Uh, Baldwin's argument uh, appeals to very important instincts uh, in, uh, among, among, in the Virginia people. So powerful that, as you all know, within days of Virginia deciding to secede, West Virginia secedes from uh, Virginia. And they secede because the secession of Virginia is illegitimate. It is the, the people did not have a fair chance to make this uh, decision. And throughout the border south, uh, that decision is echoed. Secession has been, uh, has been foisted upon us unconstitutionally, undemocratically, by a minority. Uh, we cannot uh, go ahead and secede. And Maryland does not secede, and Kentucky does not uh, secede, and Missouri uh, does not uh, secede. That whole ring of border states does not uh, secede. One-third of the South ends up uh, fighting with uh, the Union. One-third of the South ends up not having to be conquered, uh, the, the part closest to the, uh, the uh, North. The North can march their troops right up to the borders of uh, Virginia. Half of the Southern military strength goes to the uh, goes to the north because that's where the military is concentrated and that's where the industry is concentrated in places like uh, St. Louis and uh, Baltimore. Two hundred thousand uh, troops. 
from the border south states fight in the Union Army. Almost as many as are killed uh, in the uh, Union Army. And if you add the black slaves who, who, who uh, run away from their masters and who end up fighting in the Union Army, there are more Southerners fighting white and black fighting in the Union Army than the, Union, than the whole uh, number of, of, uh, of people killed in the Union Army during the Civil War. Everything changes uh, as a result of the way secession uh, takes place. Uh, so I hope I've been able to show you tonight uh, that how the secession decision uh, takes place uh, has a lot to do with how the war is uh, fought. And in that process of how the secession decision is taken, it is not just a matter of slavery and not just a matter of states' rights. Little quirks, little personalities, little uh, coincidences, like when a railroad is finished and how a president makes uh, his decision and how a great debate is staged in the Virginia Secession Convention. All of this counts, too, in the story that we all celebrate in the Civil War. Thank you so much, everybody. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. I'd like to uh, appreciation for coming to speak to us tonight. I'd like to present to you this medallion for gallant service on behalf of the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago, May 14th, 2010. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Appreciate that. Appreciate it. Any questions? Rose. Uh -oh. <laughs> I guess I got to ask the Francis Barco question here. Uh, your thesis seems to be that, in large part, a speech by a wandering state senator from Georgia suddenly turned around the attitude in South Carolina. Uh, seeing as how Barto was a a state senator, one of fifty in Georgia, b an unsuccessful Whig candidate in a state which had a Democratic governor, and c a world-class alcoholic. Um, that doesn't bother these guys a bit. The state, the state changed his mind because a wandering state senator gives a speech. I, I know in Illinois, if somebody from Wisconsin pledged Wisconsin, a state senator came down and pledged Wisconsin, we wouldn't change our minds about Wisconsin very much. That, that, doesn't that suggest that South Carolina was just waiting for the feeblest of excuses to secede? Well, I wouldn't put it that way. That's close to what I would put the way I put it. I would say they were waiting for the feeblest of opportunities uh, to. Uh, that Bartow told them what they were desperate to hear, but they still did have to hear it. They still did have to have somebody like Bartow uh, make this kind of uh, pronouncement. Uh, it's far from what I think to think that Bartow changes everything around. What I do think is that the South Carolinians were desperate to hear the message that Bartow gave them, uh, and Bartow just happened to be there at just the right moment to deliver the message that they, want, they wanted to hear. John? You made the comparison between the nullification crisis with Andrew Jackson and, this, and the, the onset of the Civil War. And I'm just wondering, as, I, as I'm listening to this, is it possible that, that the willingness of the hotheads in South Carolina and elsewhere to push this to, to, to their attempted secession, is part of this based on the fact that they have contempt for this, this bumpkin of an attorney from the prairies of Illinois, that he will be unable to do anything to stop us, whereas 
1832, they faced the legendary Andrew Jackson as commander-in-chief. And the idea of an army being led by Andrew Jackson would be enough to give anybody pause. Was, was some of this just a feeling that this, this prairie lawyer is going to be too weak and, and unable to do anything about our attempt? No, I think you've got I think you're absolutely right. And, and, and <clears throat> they're too contemptuous for their own good. They're not capable of seeing that somebody like Lincoln is, has qualities of statesmanship that they don't dream having. Uh, and that, that's a very good point. Uh, that's another reason why they're anxious not to avoid this thing. And I would add, they know that Buchanan is going to be president for the next few months. Uh, and they figure that Buchanan is such an idiot that, uh, that maybe they can, uh, uh, they can have this uh, game over before Lincoln is ever president. There is a, a whole bunch of contempt in this South Carolina attitude. Contempt for staying in the Union, contempt for democracy, contempt for James Buchanan, contempt for Abraham Lincoln, and contempt breeds uh, an insufficient capacity to understand who you're up against. So I like what you're saying. I always like what you're saying. <laughs> oh, uh oh. Now I saw some. Uh, Henry Wise's argument seemed to be that in a revolutionary, or at least what he saw as a revolutionary situation, some of the usual constitutional protections got to be shortcutted a little. Would you draw a parallel between that and some of the arguments President Lincoln made for uh, in 1860? Some of the similar arguments that he made. I sure would, uh, and I'd go further. I think there's a there's a parallel between these arguments and the arguments we're hearing today about uh, how certain civil liberties have to be shortcutted in a time of national crisis. And that's one reason I think this debate is so great. Uh, I've, 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 I've done this recreation in high school classrooms, and they enjoy it. And they enjoy it, first of all, because they don't have to hear their teacher groaning on, and I can see a couple of clowns uh, uh, re re reinforcing something. But, I, but they see immediately that there's a problem with democracy. Uh, if you take it too far at certain moments, that certain civil liberties might uh, destroy the republic uh, if, you, if you insist on them too uh, strongly. And that's the big issue between Wise and uh, Baldwin. Do certain civil liberties have to be suspended at such a grave moment? Uh, and what's great about our field, you and I, uh, is the Civil War is so continually relevant to uh, our contemporary uh, world. So we're not just studying something ancient and antique. We're studying the very guts of democracy and what democracy is all about. And a crisis like the Civil War brings out uh, that discussion. Uh, and I think you see it in this Baldwin-Wise thing. I, I sometimes ask the high school classes, who do you think is right? Who do you think wins this debate? Who, who would you go along with? Uh, and that almost always sparks a very vigorous decision, uh, discussion with some people thinking Wise is right and some people thinking Baldwin's right. And when high school kids start fighting about who was right in 1861, boy, we've really succeeded in doing something. <laughs> <laughs> Further questions? Let me tell you just a little bit about uh, my books. 
that you can buy any of them for $20, and I'll be glad to sign them for you. This is my history of the, uh, the secession crisis itself. starts in 1854, goes in great detail, as will not surprise you, over what happened to that railroad uh, in South Carolina. This is my book, The South Versus the South, which argues that the divisions in the South, and especially the border South, staying with the Union has a lot to do with uh, the North winning the Civil War. And this is my latest book, and uh, I'm so proud of it uh, because it's my latest, uh, the way you're proud of a newborn son uh, or daughter. Uh, this is called Showdown in Virginia, and it's a, it's, a, it's a distillation of all the debates in the Virginia Convention, uh, and particularly the debate between Baldwin and uh, Wise. Any of them are on sale for you for $20, and I'll be glad to sign them. Thank you, Bill. Uh, we will meet again uh, Friday, June 11th for the 692nd uh, regular meeting when uh, John V. Quarstein will talk to us about the Battle of the Ironclads. Until then, be safe on the way home and see you next month.